So welcome to WEMcast with me, Owen Walker, the World Extreme Medicine Trauma Lead. Today's episode is on hypothermia. And no better way to tackle this episode than with uh, colleagues and friends, Dr. Sean Hudson and ENP Ben Cooper. So Sean uh, Hudson has had a portfolio career in medicine. He's currently a GP in the north of England with a specialist interest in pre-hospital care. He's also a consultant for an international retrieval and reachback company and a medical consultant for the Foreign Office. He also volunteers uh, for Halo International as a medical director on demining operations. He's medical director for Tyrolis, a counter-poaching training and delivery company, and his passion has been providing medical cover in numerous culture, uh, countries and specialities in the Middle East, despite having awful Arabic. <laughs> Um, in his previous life, he was an expedition medic and has helped set up expedition medicine uh, in its former life and developed many of their courses. He's got a particular interest um, in the use of manipulation of healthcare in conflict and is currently studying a PhD in the weaponization of medicine. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. Good morning. I always, why do I always say good morning? Is it, tell me it's morning where you are. It's evening where yeah. we are, but, um, but that's absolutely fine. <laughs> Good evening. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> uh, ben, uh, sorry, Sean, I should have probably mentioned your Arctic experience, um, Sean. So just, just as, we, as we proceed right now, do tell us a little bit about your Arctic experience. I've done uh, four seasons in Antarctica, uh, most of them with Ben. Um, okay. I, I, had, I, had to have a, I had to have a child every time I went down to Antarctica. That was the quid pro quo. <laughs> and, um, and I think I've done about... Oh, I don't know, 10 or 16 um, uh, North Pole um, uh, adventures as well. So whether that's dog sledding or skiing or... Ten, I've never ten. actually been to the North Pole. I've been to the South Pole, all the poles, in fact, and um, was lucky enough to take a, um, a very important French gentleman around um, Antarctica a few years ago and got to visit most of the, um, of the polar stations as well, which is fantastic. Fantastic. Fantastic, fantastic. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Morning. Morning, <laughs> Morning Ben. Morning, Ben. Morning, John. Ben, ben has worked as an A &E in the A&E department in Sheffield for over 20 years and is an A&E department charge nurse and an emergency nurse practitioner. Uh, since 2004, his pre-hospital career has taken him to the south of Antarctica with ALE, Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. Um, he spent time at Ailey's uh, field camp at Patriot, Patriot's Hill and then, and then on to Union Glacier. Ben did six seasons with Ailey um, on Union Glacier, and it, which is home to some of the world's most remote field hospitals. He's also helped uh, there provide medical cover and rescue to all the expeditions skiing to the South Pole, climbing Mount Vincent, Antarctic marathons and ultra races alongside escort escorting clients on flights to and from the South Pole. Ben is also a member of the WEM teaching faculty since 2008, and he's also taught and directed on many of the UK courses and European courses and specialises in the polar medicine course in Arctic Norway since 2009. So, Sean, my first question to you. So this is a podcast on hypothermia. And um, so no better way to start the podcast by really just defining hypothermia and, and just getting your from your perspective <clears throat> what the best way to perceive the condition is. So if we try and keep it really simple, um, uh, hypothermia is a byproduct of the fact that heat loss is greater than the amount of heat that you can gain. 
So keep it simple. And we all, I think we probably all understand that you're going to lose and gain heat by sort of four modalities, aren't you? You're going to go, you've got convection, conduction, radiation, and evaporation. There, there's, it is really quite confusing when you, you read the literature because they're very defined um, in terms of the temperatures that you will, you will find somebody with a type one stroke B hypothermia. But when you're in the field, it is almost impossible to measure somebody's core temperature. Um, absolutely. So uh, Gordon Giesbrecht, who prof popsicle, did a study of which N equals one, and he looked at right atrial temperature esophageal temperature and rectal temperature all at the same time. He, did, he plotted out a fantastic curve. They all eventually come to the same point, but um, esophageal and atrial are uh, you know, pretty specific to, to and, and represent the temperature that you're at, at the time. But rectal temperature can lag sometimes up to an hour because, of course, that thermometer, even if it's a, it's a specific low reading thermometer, could go into a piece of feces and you know the temperature is going to be not your core temperature. So if we keep it really simple again, if we go to Gordon Giesbrecht, and he's, um, he's defined it as in, in, in three sections. So our normal core temperature, 36 to 37. Interesting, it's actually decreased over the last decade. But we're looking at you know, core temperature 36 and a half. You become hypothermic, mildly hypothermic, when it's 35. You become moderately hypothermic, at approximately 32, you become severely hypothermic at approximately 28. And so for us in that pre-hospital sphere, it's what we are less interested in is exactly what somebody's core temperature really is, because we'll all vary at the point at which we will develop the signs and symptoms that would represent those core temperatures. Um, but initially, effectively, you will start shivering. And shivering starts at a really early phase you know, you recognize the fact that it's cold, your peripheral thermoreceptors go, wow, it's a bit chilly here. I'm going to need to generate some, um, some energy as the byproduct of shivering before I get cold. So if somebody's shivering in that initial phase, they may well not be hypothermic. Uh, shivering then moves through this phase of, of going into uh, becoming more um, convulsive and it'll wax and wane. And then eventually shivering will stop. And that's going through mild, moderate, and severe. If somebody is mildly hypothermic, so if you're in that 35 to 32 bracket, um, you you can and they're and they're shivering. You can define whether they're mildly or moderately hypothermic by just getting them to stop. If if shivering's under voluntary control, they're mildly hypothermic. If they can't stop the shivering, it they're probably moderately hypothermic. Um, and then of course. It, your cognitive function will decrease as you move down the temperatures. I like that moderate hypothermia presents with the stumbles, fumbles, mumbles, and grumbles. So people will, they're ataxic, they're, they're um, dysarthric, um, they, uh, they change their behavior, and uh, they'll often um, take clothes off, they'll whinge and moan, they might sit down and not wish to do anything. So that change in behavior and the ataxia and the dysarthria is quite a good indication of moderate hypothermia. And then, of course, when somebody's severely hypothermic, they're rigid, they're pale, they're often pulseless because they may be quite profoundly bradycardic or they may have AF or a terminal event, they might have beer. So that in a sort of very quick run through is 
uh, is a, is an overview of sort of Gordon's classification. Um, we we use tympanometers a lot in the UK to define whether some to define somebody's temperature. But you've got to be aware of what you're trying to do is you're firing that infrared beam onto the tympanic membrane. So if something's in the way, you're not going to get a true uh, reading of a core temperature. So I would I would urge people to do rectal. Uh, temperatures if they really want to get an idea of what somebody's core temperature is yeah indeed indeed sean thanks for that. that's that's really comprehensive um so my next question to ben would be from your experience ben um <clears throat> what makes it someone more um more sort of preferential to hypothermia or exposed to hypothermia for, from both internal and or external factors so yeah sort of the predisposing factors of hypothermia um from an external, no, from an internal, some of the internal are reduced heat loss. And this can come in with um, extremes of age, hypothyroidism, hyperpituitary gland problems, hyperglycemia, um, starvation, and also with race and gender. And then we can get an increased loss through skin disorders, uh, severe burns, and alcohol and smoking. And then we can get an impairment that we can't feel the cold. And this often is caused by alcohol, CNS injuries, medication prescribed or not, um, such as benzos, um, which are and um, beta blockers or trauma. And from my background of uh, sort of Mount, UK mountain rescue, the, we often get called on, on a, a major city on the edge of a national park. Um, we often get called out to uh, suicides um, and, and, and overdoses. And of those, we can get a medication list. Benzos will uh, be amongst them. And uh, that can obviously reduce your ability to feel the cold. And, and also, as one of the busiest uh, management rescue teams in the country, we see a lot of trauma. And uh, again, person lying on the floor for a significant amount of time, either scared to move or being told by a 999 service not to move um, and obviously they'll lose heat through conduction to that floor. Then we've got external factors, uh, weather, wind, rain, temperature, snow and obviously we've got this, the, the wind chill factor which is sort of wind and rain um, or wind and temperature, sorry, wind and temperature on exposed skin. So let's just say five degrees plus a 15 mile an hour wind on exposed skin, you're looking at around about, it feel like minus 13. Um, so again, from my mountain rescue background, I'm gonna look at a few of the things. So uh, this chap called Griffiths Pugh uh, was a medical officer tasked to investigate the 1964 four inch challenge where three men died and four had a near close uh, call with hypothermic death. And the study of this looked at the effects of the wet, windy conditions on clothing worn. And only one tenth of the original insulation value was, was remained in the clothing of the individuals found. Um, and again, this goes back to the sort of my mountain rescue and, be, and, and call outs and what people are carrying and obviously the, the this this chap Pugh was the medical officer in, in the second world war um he went on the Everest 1953 expedition uh he went to Antarctica 
And he also was one of the first medics to look at cross-channel swimming. Uh, he's got a very an amazing obituary in The Independent. And in his conclusions, um, wet, windy environment was key to death. Poor thermal insulation of clothing, walking to the point of exhaustion or exhaustion hypothermia, thin and low to no body fat. And also one of the individuals that died had a recent illness of flu three weeks prior to the event. And obviously his they went on to recommendations and they were all very, very basic recommendations. And if you look at today's events, adventure races, um, and, and advice for people going out into the mountains and in the environment that was suitable clothing for that environment, spare and dry clothes, uh, waterproof jacket and trousers, and an emergency shelter, which I find quite interesting in the fact that when I first joined Mountain Rescue up in uh, Northumberland in 1893, the, 1893, <laughs> 1893 um, the Kisus were around. And I'd, I'd never seen one of these before, and it was called a Carrymore International Survival Shelter Unit, I think. And only in the last maybe 15 years have these become available on the market for people to use and carry. Um, and, they're, and they're very cheap, they're very, uh, very the light, and they're, they're very quick tent um, to put up um, and then obviously commencing rewarming and on to that list in to, in today's world I would add on a whistle and torch and, and food that's comprehensive Ben um, thanks for that I think that's uh, that's absolutely relevant and and like you said you know those predisposing factors can certainly certainly play into in, into the pathology so that's that's really interesting so Owen. Sean, just just Owen. yes, mate. There was a there was a really interesting study in Alaska a couple of years ago that looks to pr the principal external factors for um, hypothermia, and it's a bit like the list of things that that will cause an Australian to be eaten by a crocodile. And so it was alcohol, um, drugs, psychiatric illness, and uh, vehicle breakdown. So they're the sort of so which is interesting because we imagine that people are out skiing and climbing and. But actually, the majority of people who get caught out in these really cold environments is simply because their vehicle breaks down or they have another intercurrent illness or they're drunk. So that's it's really interesting, actually. So in, yeah. in, in, sorry, going on to that. A couple of weeks ago on Twitter, there was an, an excellent article was going around. And it was by um, someone called testedtodestruction.blogspot.com. And it was called Go Outside, Sit Down and Wait. And it looks, and it was look, it was aimed at sort of mountain bikers and adventure runners who then get an injury or and have to then then call mountain rescue. And obviously, these people can move really fast, but then by the time they they stop, they get sweaty, they get cold, and then they call for help. But it takes sometimes an hour to two hours to three hours for help to get there. Um, and it looked at, and it was advising on people to carry more clothing and more equipment uh, in these more adventure, adventurous races, sorry. But yeah, testedtodestruction.com, go outside, sit down and wait. Fantastic article. That's great. We'll, uh, we'll provide that in the show notes, actually, Ben, because that sounds really interesting, actually. Um, so we're on expedition, or we're just about to go on expedition, Sean, um, to the South Pole. Um, and there's a whole 
number of patients that you're going to take out. Um, what are some of the red flags from the pre medical predisposing factors that, that, that you would, would want to pay attention to and, and or pick out? I think probably the, the principal diseases are going to be uh, neuropathies and endocrine diseases. You know, so any sort of endocrine dysfunction is going to predispose you to hypothermia. It doesn't mean that it's insurmountable. It just means that your, uh, your, hypoth your um, hypothyroidism or your diabetes just needs to be under really good control. You need to understand how you're going to deliver care for that chronic disease and the environment that you're going to. Um, neuropathies are, are, are quite a challenge because the person often doesn't have a perception of how, ba um, how bad the cold is because they sometimes can't feel their extremities. But again, you know, I've taken a lady with, with uh, quite a profound neuropathy to on a polar dog sledding trip. And, you know, she was at high risk of cold injuries and probably of hypothermia as well. But it just, it, it is understanding the limitations placed on the person by the disease that they got and then how you, you know, how, how you manage that. Um, I think probably, you know, it, none of these should be stops for, for, for any sort of expedition, but I, I do get concerned uh, with psychiatric illnesses, um, especially um, affective disorders, because uh, lithium is a medication that can predispose to hypothermia as well. And then, you know, I'm, I always want to make sure that anybody who's a previous history of mental health disorders is stable before they come away, because they're challenging environments to go to at the best of times. Um, Again, it doesn't mean they can't come. We just need to be aware of the impact that that disease is going to have and the environment is going to have on the disease. Um, so they're the, pretty much the sort of things that I would predominantly look for. And we would go through everyone's medical history and they need to fill that in. It needs to be signed by their medical profession, whoever normally looks after them. But it's rare for us to stop people coming to Antarctica. We've had some people with really quite profound diseases because it's often a uh, tick box you know at the end of a life people want to get there to see the south pole and it's it's hypoxic and it's cold and the altitude is high and the pressures are low and they don't realize just quite how hypoxic they're going to be when you get to south pole so that is probably more of a challenge to us interestingly at south pole than the cold is i can keep somebody warm but you know, we often have to deliver oxygen to individuals with chronic diseases, you know, when we're taking them down. Because the South Pole is two and a half thousand meters, I think, isn't it, Ben? Uh, yeah, 10,000 feet. Yeah, and it also depends on air pressure at the same time. Because, yeah. of course, in, we're moving into altitude medicine now, but of course, if you've got a really cold column of air, you get a high concentration of oxygen right at the bottom, uh, of air at the bottom, and it's less as you go. So you're two and a half thousand meters. Partial pressure of oxygen is actually lower than you'd anticipate because of the cold. And then if you get a massive low, uh, a, a low barometric pressure coming over the top of it, that reduces it even further. So I've flown into Concordia, which is the French Italian base, which is only at about two and a half to nearly, nearly three thousand. But uh, the meteorologist said on the day we flew in it was about equivalent to nearly 5,000 meters. My saturation dropped to 65. And the chap I was looking after, his saturations dropped to uh, low 40s, Gosh. which was a challenge because he had quite a lot of heart disease and liked to smoke a lot of cigarettes. 
Nice. Even yeah. when he was having nasal oxygen, which <laughs> did concern us a little bit. <laughs> As he blew up the base. He didn't. Did you see Alex Kumar while you were there? I did, yeah. I think well, what we haven't spoken about, I don't know if you're going to, we haven't, we haven't spoken about the sort of behavioural and autonomic um, responses to hypothermia. Were you going to cover yeah, that? We did touch on that, actually. I think oh, do within, we? Okay. Yeah, within um, sort of um, cold exposure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we're, I think we'll we're on it. After that shortly. And Ben, and then Sean. So my question first to Ben. So this is just, just for headlines, take-homes, really, for, for people listening to this and or watching this on the, on the WEM Academy. What have you learned from personal experience around self-care in avoiding hypothermia over sort of multiple trips and multiple years, really, in, in, in these environments? Um, I remember my first polar medicine course, having been to Antarctica about four times by, by then, three, four times by then. And Kerry Williams was uh, was in charge of the course. And Kerry was an ex-PTI uh, colour sergeant with 4-5 Commando. And he was course director. And his opening line was, be bothered. And I thought, and it still stuck to me today, and I think that's the same for all environments, extreme environments that you're in, be bothered. And so at the end of the day, when you're tired and want to eat, it's about being bothered to dry your kit out, to hang your kit up to, dr to dry, take your linings out of your gloves, put them over something warm or hang up in your tent, take the lining out of your boots, hang them up in your tent or put them over something warm, hang kit up that's been wet in that day so it's all dry for the following for the following day. Um, and that's always stuck with me, that, 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 that phrase, be bothered. Um, I like the mnemonic cold, which stands for obviously clean, open, layers, dry. So clean clothes are, are warm clothes. Um, be a bit able to open your clothes up and vent so you don't overheat. Um, because as we all know from our Norwegian friend, if you sweat, you die. And layers, lots of thin layers are better than thick one or two thick layers. And weren't dry you, clothes are... Weren't you part of that competition that we had in Antarctica? Antarctica to how long you could keep a pair of underpants on without taking them off. It was that. <laughs> I think I got to. 62 <laughs> days. <laughs> you weren't allowed to take them off your legs. I nearly killed everyone in the aeroplane when we got <laughs> on in, in, in Punta Arenas. Oh, that was because you came off the ice and went straight onto the <laughs> onto the on the land chili flight, didn't you? With your full thermals on. I thought everyone was going to die. You'd be in a CBRN incident yourself, <laughs> peeling them off your legs. <laughs> oh, and then, and then, still my line there. And then, um, obviously, D dry, um, dry clothes or warm clothes, um, and obviously the, the correct clothes for that environment. Um, you see it all the time in the UK. At the end of this week, we're going to have a, a, a cold front come through and it's going to be raining and sleeting. And people will put on a big down jacket to keep warm. But the down jacket will absorb the water, it'll absorb the moisture, and it loses its thermal properties. So down's great for minus temperatures. It, it 
called latitudes and altitudes. But actually, for a UK environment, it, it's not good kit. Um, and I would say invest, as, as, my, as my mate James Thacker says, he's a, he's a mountain guide, invest in your fingers and toes. So if you're going to spend money, spend it on gloves and socks and boots and not as much on it. Uh, and he says, oh, he sees a lot of people will spend a lot of money on a, on a big jacket, but save money on, on gloves. Um, and and, in, and with gloves, I've always gone, I've always been a big fan, having seen a lot of frostbite in Antarctica, of having idiot loops on all gloves. Um, it's the first thing you see in the European ski fields, really, as you get on a ski lift in the first 30 metres, you'll always see a single glove on the floor. Someone's got on the ski lift, they've got the phone out to take a picture, a selfie, answer a call, and they'll drop a glove. And, uh, and that's a very quick way of, of getting frost nip um, when you're moving at speed. Um, and a few good books, like Sean was doing before, a few good books. Obviously, Christmas is coming. Um, so Keeping Dry and Staying Warm is, just, is, a, is a new book that's come out. And as one I was discussing with Sean yesterday, it's called The Secrets of Warmth. So they're my top tips. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic, Ben. Some real, really good take-homes there, actually. Uh, Sean, over to you. To, so, some of your take-homes that you've just kind of learned or, or been um, reminded of over the years. Well, my kids are sick of hearing the, uh, the mantra, be bothered. But I'd agree. It, Kerry Williams and Eddie Cole, it came out of their mouths, you know, and it's all about, you know, uh, any expedition, especially in a cold environment, requires people to all pull together and deliver. Um, and the, probably one that I don't adhere to because I'm a bit of a grumpy old sod is uh, only say positive things. Because if you whinge and there's two of you and it's remote and it's miserable, it will just get you all down. So I, that's the sort of this, the, the psychology. I think uh, the six P's of preparation, you know, you've got to run through it all. You've got to run through how you're going to do everything because it's so cold. You cannot, as Ben said, you cannot drop your gloves. I dropped my gloves uh, on one of the first trips I did to Norway with a, a um, camera crew because somebody um, was really sick. Actually, they fitted in the middle of the night off the back of a dog sled and we had to dig a snow hole. I didn't have idiot loops on my gloves and got frostbite in the ends of my fingers. Um, and now if I go to a polar environment, they are they're looped around and behind my body always. Uh, layering by the best stuff you can you can get a hold of whether that's the norwegian ulfrot or whether it's basque the russians make some great stuff but just get your layering right and never have skin onto a cold surface because if it's really cold in antarctica it'll just freeze it'll be like a, a cold burn uh, calorie intake hydration of course really important you can't generate heat if you haven't got enough calories in and you will burn through the calories really quickly. Um, a, a really common injury that we see is uh, skier's thumb. And it only seems to happen. I, I think it only really happens in British expeditioners going to the South Pole because they, they don't really, uh, I'm going to, you know, a, a lot of them haven't done a lot of preparation and skiing before they come away and they grip those poles like outriggers on a boat 
Um, and of course, the grip that they have means that the, they reduce the blood flow to the thumbs. And it says just the, it's those, all those little things. So making sure that your, your gloves aren't too tight, that your ski poles are the right size, that when you've got your massive mitts on, you can actually get them around your ski poles. So it's, it is just, it's the minutiae that makes the difference in these environments. Um, and as Ben always says, don't sweat, because if you sweat, you'll die. I think going back to Sean's thing there, but, but I think with the skier's thumb, a lot of clothing these days has a thumb loop on them. It's where you push your thumb through the, 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 the clothing. And that in itself, if it's too tight, can automatically start cutting off circulation to your thumb. So if, you, if that is the case, then it'd be better off to remove that thumb loop. Um, and also, if your kit doesn't keep you dry in the UK, doesn't keep you dry and warm in the UK and the kit doesn't work in your back garden and you then don't be taking it on an expedition. So you, I think if you, if you for me, if the kit works in, in, in the Peak District, it's great. If it works in Scotland, great. Then it goes on a trip. But if I, it's not keeping me warm and dry in the peaks, then I'm not taking it any, anywhere else that I'm going to have to rely on it. Just going back to your value of spending money on your fingers and toes, I remember I bought some heat pads for the inserts for my uh, my eight thousand meter boots. I remember whinging to Chris Emery about the, how how expensive they were. And he went, "Mate, that's twelve pound a toe. <laughs> you know, it's worth every penny that you spend on, on those heat pads." And he was absolutely right; they were invaluable. I think when it comes down to it, like you said, attention to detail is is absolutely key. And and uh, you're right. Whether if it's not tried and tested, and proof of concept hasn't occurred elsewhere, trying to for the first trialing out boots or gloves for the first time, and or jackets for the first time in extreme environments, any extreme environment, I think is is is, is never a good idea. Yeah, no recipe for disaster. Scotland, however, is an excellent stomping ground. To, you know, if you can if you can get along in a in a cold, wet Scottish winter, the chances are you'll be absolutely fine in uh, you know northern Norway or in Antarctica. Yeah, it's good. It, it just tends to be drier. It's yeah. pretty cold, but it's miserable when it's cold and wet in Scotland. Some of the most miserable times I've ever had. I think um, in one of Chris Imray's things it is is a new trip, um, new new socks. New, yeah, new trip, new socks. Yeah. Because a lot of time you wear your, your walking socks, you've paid 20 quid for a pair of walking socks, you wear them and you wear them and you actually knock the insulation out of them. Um, and then if you're on big mountains, there's no insulation properties in your socks. Um, you, a lot of people have spent a lot of money, sort of we're talking sort of $50,000 plus on on these big mountains um, to, to, to spend an extra 100, 100 pound on some brand new socks well, um, to keep your toes nice and warm is, is, is money well spent in, in, a, in, a, vas in a, a vascular surgeon's eyes. Yes. Owen, are we, are we going to cover um, treatment of hypothermia? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So we're just about to come on to that, actually. Okay, My next question, actually. No, that's fine. My next question, actually, Sean, is, is directed to you and is, is, is around the innate autonomic response to sort of cold water immersion and how we can understand it from a physiological perspective and, 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 and or maybe tackle it. Um, so if you could just run us through the autonomic response and, and what happens on a, on a, on a, on a sort of a, on a physiological level. Yeah. Should we, I tell you what, why, should we run through 
uh, hypothermia autonomic or the response. And then we can look at the differences that you get within in the cold water because it's just ever so slightly, it's nuanced, but yes. it is different. So, you know, the first thing you'll do when you get exposed to the cold is you'll have behavioral changes. So you'll recognize that it's cold. You think, wow, this is pretty chilly. What I need to do is get a shelter up or I need to get out of this cold environment or I need to get some warm clothes on or I need to have, you know, a hot drink. But what's going on so with your autonomics is obviously you're getting, you're, you're, you've got a vasoconstriction, you're shutting down the blood flow to the peripheries because you want to you want to bring all that lovely warm blood and keep it going through your, your principal organs. There's an interesting response. If you only expose um, small parts or uh, individual parts of your body to the cold, so say your hands, then you get what's called a hunting response. So you put your hands in cold water, they're vasoconstrict. Your body recognizes that by vasoconstricting, you'll, you'll predispose it to cold injury. So it then vasodilates and vasoconstricts. And you, it, when we come to talk about frostbite, you'll see people exposed to the same challenge. Some, I mean, Jamie Andrews is probably the best example. You'll see people who shut down and don't have, that's, you imagine that they don't have quite a profound hunting response, but they don't get as hypothermic, whereas, individuals that they're with will have it they lose heat and they become more profoundly hypothermic so anyway so you get your vasoconstriction that might cycle but then eventually that turns off and you vasoconstrict um uh constantly you get a you get shivering because obviously you're trying to generate heat um you can increase heat production uh with shivering thermogenesis e easily five times and, and even more when it's quite profound um you'll get a diuresis because of course you're not um, supplying blood to the biggest organ in the body, to your skin. So it all, your, your renal function says, well, you know, uh, volume's increased, I need to peel this out. Um, which is interesting when we come to talk about cold immersion, because that can uh, result in, in a collapse. And then in, in that initial phase, your heart rate will go up. Um, blood pressure may go up, it normally remains about the same, but as you move down, uh, the temperatures and you start to go to moderate and severe hypothermia, your heart rate will slow, you become bradycardic, you're then liable to become, uh, develop arrhythmias, you might get AF and VF, you get uh, decreased platelet function um, and you might get changes in your clotting cascade because the en enzymatic actions will change as well. And you get a similar, you get a similar presentation to sort of DIC, that, you know, that will be your, your end point. Yeah, um, yeah. Treatment of hypothermia is really simple. It is just about getting out of that. Sorry, we co are you going to cover treatment later? We're going to cover treatment sh shortly for, for, okay. for frost and for frostbite. But 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 treatment actually because they're both nuanced quite rightly as you said earlier, Sean. So let's we can move into treatment of hype of, of sort of more no, we generic. Can do, we can do that later, mate. I'm talk about so cold water immersion. You'll run through exactly the same plethora of autonomic responses, but really interestingly, um, you've sort of got you more you've you've got three phases. Off, well, it depends on whether you're wearing some sort of flotation device. It may only be two uh, in your response to cold immersion, obviously, rather than submersion. So when you get into the water, you've got that gasp response that you don't always see, but most people will, will elicit it, where you, you just hyperventilate. And it's hard to control that. 
and that um, that hyperventilation can result in aspiration. So uh, again, Prof Popsicle, Gordon Griesbeck has done a really nice little um, uh, public service announcement in the same way that Sammy used to tell us how to cross the road when you were a kid. Uh, Gordon Griesbeck tells you what to do when you live in Canada and you fall in the ice and you need to get out. Um, so it's all about getting your, your, your breathing under control. Uh, you know, once you've done that, things are calm. You've then got a window of opportunity before you'll get uh, a fine and gross motor dysfunction. Um, the time for that to come on really depends on how cold the water is and, uh, and your morphology as well. Um, we, ben and I were discussing this yesterday, and I'm trying to discuss this with Heather Massey, at, um, who's uh, at the Institute of Naval Medicine at the moment, about whether you can acclimatize to cold and whether your body gets used to the cold and hence your gross function, gross motor function and fine motor function can be maintained for longer. Yeah, I'm it, just from a personal experience, I'm not convinced whether it changes that much, to be honest. I think a lot is driven by your morphology and your level, your, your reservoir, your level of uh, ex, uh, your, um, your exercise capability and capacity, you know, how cold the water is, etc. But so you've got the gas response, you then have loss of fine and gross motor function, and then you'll get hypothermia. In order to get hypothermia, you've got to have a buoyancy device on. It, it takes a while and you're going to drown because you can't swim before you become hypothermic. Yeah, indeed. So that gross, gross motor, fun loss of yeah. gross motor function. Yeah. I was yeah. Um, looking the other day, I was just saying for this conversation, uh, what is cold water? And I, and I found this um, outdoorswimmer.com. And, uh, and basically, they say cold water is anything, is water described anything less than 15 degrees. And on the, the outdoorswimmer.com, so water between 10 and 15 degrees is described. Their technical term is nippy. <laughs> um, between 5 and 10 degrees is effing cold. <laughs> and between 0 and 5 degrees, the technical term is bloody freezing. <laughs> and then obviously this, this paper here, but it's just saying that 15 to 20 degrees is the English channel in the summer. Um, and that's balmy. That's, that's my favorite. Balmy is 20 to 25 degrees. And stifling is 25 to 30, and hot is more than 30 degrees. But cold water in the UK is described as anything below 30 degrees. No, sorry, 30 degrees, 15 degrees. 15 degrees, okay. 15 degrees, 15 degrees yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah. They, and, and going on to, to this, 1101 is the sort of the new uh, phrase that people use where you've got one minute to gain. Uh, your control of your breathing, um, and if you if you've got warning that you're going into the cold water to try and get in to go in slowly and keep your head above the water as much as possible, um, and then once you're in the, the in the water, the R and LI are now talking about the mnemonic float, which means um, fight against your instincts to panic and or swim hard to lean back. Um, into the water, keeping your airway open. Um, open your body up like in a, in a, in a star, uh, star shape. So you float um, and gentle actions with your hands and feet will keep you, uh, keep you afloat and time. So this is up to 60 to 90 seconds to control your breathing. 
And then you've got 10 minutes um, of meaningful movements to uh, do a self-rescue um, or put a life jacket on or get hold of something to help you float um, or get out of the frozen lake. And I remember on the polar medicine courses and go people, uh, probably Sean would have been saying actually, um, or it might be Matt Edwards, because he's got a beard, that if you get your hands above the ice and put your on your jacket will will automatically freeze to the ice and that'll stop you from going under. And if you've got a big beard to rest your chin on the ice and your beard, your hair of your beard will stick to the ice and you'll stop you from, from going under and drowning. So you could get your, you could get your quiff, Owen, yeah, yeah, yeah. just to, to put, oh, Ben and I be absolutely stuffed. <laughs> yeah, my only chance would be to get my nasal hairs yeah. onto, onto the ice. What a licking. Or the ear hair. Yeah. <laughs> I get my hair gel on there and there's no, there's, there'll be no. Oh, mate, that's not coming off. Yeah. You have to get the fire brigade when they eventually come round to get that off. And so, you, so oh. your, your beard then sticks to the, um, to the ice and it stops you from, from going under. And therefore, you're found on the surface rather than being found often in the spring or when, when, when the ice breaks. Um, and then you've got one hour before becoming hypothermic and losing consciousness. That's one ten one. Um, and I'm looking at some of the drowning stats, really. And drowning is the third leading cause of death in the world. And it works out at 42 people per hour die of drowning. Um, 550 UK deaths, uh, mainly in the summer months and mostly on inland waters. Uh, and also, I'm looking at holidays. Um, sadly, a lot of children die on the first and the last day of this of holidays. Um, and they put that down to arriving at a, a hotel complex. Um, the kids get in the pool. They're not being supervised or mum and dad say go to the pool and we'll come down in a minute. We'll sort the suitcases out. And on the last day, packing up and the kids are getting overconfident uh, of their ability to swim and they're not being supervised. Um, I find that quite a, a sad, sad so statistic, really. Um, what we didn't mention earlier was uh, going back to... Um, cold water immersion is obviously cold water will trans will conduct heat away 25 times quicker than air so you will become hypothermic much quicker and also we didn't mention that hydrostatic effect as well so that pressure on the skin although it's not perceptible um, uh, increases the diuresis so you'll decrease your plasma volume which can then um, result in this um, uh, collapse you know when you're post-immersion collapse so when you're rescued and ben and i were discussing yesterday you know the fast net when the when the race was on and guys were getting rescued they've been in the water for pretty prolonged periods of time they were alive when they were being picked up they were dead or they had collapsed and were unresponsive when they got into the helicopter and that's because they were being lifted vertically lost lose the hydrostatic pressure massive diuresis uh, that in conjunction with hypothermia. So there was a move to horizontal rescue. And like all, you know, like all, anyone who's hypothermic, uh, if you are rough with them, uh, uh, they, are, they are very um, unstable uh, cardiac tissue and they're, they're very likely to have uh, an arrhythmia. arrhythmia. And VF yeah. is very common. Mm -hmm. So if you handle somebody really roughly in the context of uh, managing hypothermia, 
So the likelihood is you're probably putting them into BF. Yeah. So they say treat them like porcelain, don't they? Yeah. Right. I'm out of time, chaps. Um, So I'm just going to move the conversation on slightly because of time. Um, So I'm just going to ask Ben to differentiate between frost nip and frostbite. Then I'm going to come back to you, Sean, and talk about the management of frost nip and frostbite because, like you said before, it's it's quite nuanced. And so, um, so Ben, could you just define frost nip and frostbite for us? So uh, frost nip is a reversible freezing cold injury which um, will resolve completely within 10 minutes of starting to rewarm. And it will, appearance, uh, skin appear pale, and it look like candle wax, a drop of candle wax um, on the skin. It's really common in uh, cheeks, chins, and earlobes um, that are exposed to cold. And more so if they're exposed and you're traveling at speed, so running or skiing or skidooing, um, or, well, or, or naturally the wind increases um, because of bad weather. Um, I think I got, I got nipped once in Arctic Finland. Um, it was about minus 25 in the valley. It was um, about 20 to 25 mile an hour wind. So the wind chill factor on bare exposed skin was about minus 55, minus 58. So frostbite within 10 minutes. And I was trying to get my camera uh, out of my bag, uh, take some pictures and I had big mitts on. And um, I had to take my mitt off to get my camera out and take some pictures. And I I remember my index finger getting really cold very quickly. Um, And then then if this, so simple treatment measures of frost nip um, simply by putting, pulling the hood down, um, turning, putting a hood up, sorry, or pulling a hat down, um, wearing a ski mask or a balaclava or goggles, um, simply covering that exposed skin, seeking shelter, or putting a warmed, ungloved hand over that area will, should sort out the frost nip. Now, if it doesn't, then that's when you've got frost bite. So frost nips should be able to be fielded, sort of fixed in the field. And um, you should never see it in a hospital and sort of type of setting. But if frost nip hasn't sorted itself out within the field with simple measures, then you've got frost bite. That's comprehensive, Ben. Yeah, that's comprehensive. So Sean, just talk us through frost bite, both, both from a management perspective and yeah, just, just, just how you might manage them acutely so and maybe over time. So same triggers. So it's cold. It's interesting talking about, um, uh, you know, wind chill. Obviously, wind chill only has an impact on areas of skin that are exposed. You know, if, you, if your clothing's all done up, uh, you know, wind chill, it doesn't really have an impact. So uh, it's got to be cold, got to be exposed, restricted clothing, uh, hypothermia, increased pressure. So ski boots, we often see kite skiers these days in Antarctica. They'll be on a reach for sometimes a whole day and hence the pressure is only on one side of their of their feet and they'll get cold injuries the result of pressure and the cold um previous frostbite of course that means you're more likely to get it if you go back again and then there's certain medication as well anything that is a as a vasoconstrictor so beta blockers are probably the most common thing but the pathophysiology of frostbite is you get um uh ice crystal formation 
extracellular predominantly, but intracellular as well. And then probably the, the principal uh, patho pathophysiological cause is you get vascular occlusion. So you get uh, platelet aggregation, you get endothelial damage. It, you know, in one respect, it's really similar to, to what we're seeing with COVID at the moment and the multi-embolic effect as a result of uh, endothelial tearing. Um, and the platelet aggregation is probably driven by thromboxane A2 and prostaglandin, which then becomes that, you know, the, why is that interesting? Because it, it drives the medication that we might use when we come around to, to treating frostbite. So it, it'll present, as Ben has said, you know, you get that pale, sometimes hard, parasthetic skin. You know, you tap it and it feels like a little piece of wood, but you can also get blister formation. So what we're looking at is the cold injury moving down through the layers, epidermis, dermis, um, um, uh, down through and into muscle and then of course into bone as well so that you get cold injuries all the way through that um, if you get uh, deeper cold injuries you'll get blister formation and you'll see the blisters change as they go from pale to dusky and then because they're blood filled as you go through and into the dermis a bad sign is, um, is peripheral blisters with distal duskiness so if you've got purple looking digit with blisters proximal to it that's not a good sign you know a, a clear blister at the end of a finger with a little bit of uh hardness around the, the rest of the finger you know that's superficial frostbite but when you start to see the involvement of vascular tissue so through and into the dermis that's when you start to move into uh you describe it as deep frostbite Sean, that's fantastic so just just looking at that um and sort of uh, and around the management of frostbite. Um, uh, ben mentioned about the management of frost nip and the reversible causes. So you've got someone who's just presented. They've got they've got those characteristics. They've got some uh, some deep discoloration, some um, some proximal pro proximal blisters. Um, what what's your sort of acute management in that phase? So if they've got superficial frostbite, the first thing to do would be to change the environment. So get them get get their limb get them out of the environment that you're they're in and try and rewarm the uh, the part of the body that's cold um and if it as ben was pointing out if it rewarms and he gets normal sensation back and the tissue feels soft you've got to change something otherwise they'll get that again so is the glove too tight is the glove wet you know are the shoes too tight have they left a zip open uh, uh, you know is the is it exposed to the wind you know you 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 need to change something about, and it might be that they're just a bit hypothermic and the, the, you know, they, they don't have enough energy, they don't have enough calories, you know. So hypothermia, of course, will cause peripheral vasoconstriction. So change something. If you if they've got frost nip, you change it, they go back, and you, you just keep an eye on it. If it's fro if you rewarm it and it doesn't rewarm, um, and they're still parasitic and it's still hard. You, you need to seek shelter and try and rewarm that tissue properly. It's, it's very interesting. Once you start to get, when it's superficial, you can rewarm in that environment because you don't get that post rewarming swelling. But if you've got uh, blisters, if you've got deep frostbite, what you don't want to be doing is rewarming in an environment that you can't keep warm. 
because the worst thing you can do to frozen tissue is to thaw it and then freeze it. That line of demarcation will be your amputation point. So freeze thaw is probably the worst thing. You, uh, well, you know, rubbing it, putting it in front of, of dry heat and then free, freezing, thawing and freezing. That will result in you losing tissue. So you've got a you've got a decision to make at the point at which you see somebody with deep frostbite. Can I rewarm the tissue here where I am without um, freezing it again? Or do we need to go somewhere else? And you're better walking on frozen tissue or climbing on frozen tissue to a place where you can rewarm it properly. Um, you know, the, the, you know we've, we've dealt with people in Antarctica who've had really quite profound frostbite and almost to a man, or, you know, that tissue will swell and, and the, the digits, the hand become unusable and you can't fit, you can't fit feet back in the boots. So you take what's a man, manageable situation into something that is going to turn into a right drama because you've now got swollen tissue that they can't get a, a boot on and you're going to have to evacuate them from where you are carrying them. So you've got that, you're really interested in that initial decision. And it's, you know, it's taken a while for the frostbite to come on. It's not like trauma. It's, you're not going through your March principles. It is, let's have a think about this and maybe a cup of tea. We'll decide what we're going to do and where we're going to go before we start to get really excited. Basically, um, right, it's that pragmatic decision-making. Um, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, what I would do, though, at that early stage, before I give them to Ben to work his magic with his dressings and his rewarming, is I would give them, this is coming back to the, the, mo the modulators, the thromboxin A2 and the prostaglandin, I would give them aspirin and ibuprofen at that very early stage. So I give them 75 milligrams of aspirin as long as they're able to take it, and 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. So that should act, you know, to reduce the inflammation and to reduce the platelet aggregation at that early stage. And then I hand them over to Nurse Gladys Emanuel, who will do work his wonders with it, with these box of witchery tricks. So that point of view, we're now into an environment that that person's going to then stay in. They're not going to go continue to climb. They're not going to continue to ski. And they're now back at, say, for example, Union Glacier. Uh, it's a controlled environment. We've got all the resources there. That person we're going to treat for, for hypothermia, for, for, for one, uh, and, and also other ex any, any other trauma. Um, and then we're going to, if can give them oxygen if, if needed. Um, we're going to hydrate them and feed them. Um, and then we're going to put their, their limb or their frostbitten area. Bear in mind, frostbite can attack any part of the body. It's not just fingers and toes, um, but fingers and toes are the most common areas. And we're going to submerge those body parts in some water, a warm water um, that's been pre-warmed around about 35 to 40 degrees. So it's like a child's bath, really. And we're going to leave it in there for around about sort of 30 minutes. Um, what we aren't going to do is have a stove underneath that pan of warm water to, to boil it through. It is separate, um, separate warm water. Um, and then we take the limb out and then we're just going to let it air dry. We're not going to rub it with a towel um, because we're going to potentially cause damage. Let it air dry and then cover 
the area in uh, aloe vera, which is an antiprostaglandin, um, and then a sort of tulle-based dressing, um, a non-adherent dressing, and then wrap in some sort of felt um, that we use for putting on plaster Paris, um, wrap them in felt and then bandage that, uh, that frozen area up. Um, and again, hydrate um, uh, and, and, and encourage eating, uh, possibly before all this, depending on the severity of the, of the frostbite, you may want to give some uh, intravenous analgesia. Um, depending because it is going to be painful when that sort of warming, uh, rewarming sort of starts off. Um, and then once we've done all that, we're going to say continue to, to keep that person in a enclosed um, environment where we can control the, the, the temperature and, and obviously then start seeking expert um, advice um, from that person's um, country. Um, and for us in the UK, our, the, our leading expert, and it's one of the, the world's leading expert, is Professor Chris Imray, um, who's a, a very good friend of, 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 the, of the WEM family, and hand him over to someone, to someone like that for further continuing care. The question I often get asked is, um, uh, when do you know that the tissue is, uh, is rewarmed? And as Ben was pointing out there, it's when it becomes painful. Is it reperfuses, the pain's quite is pretty intense. Uh, I've had to give uh, opiates to people in the past because of that rewarming. The other question I often get asked is, so what medication do you continue to give them in that transfer phase? So I just uh, give them ibuprofen. I think it's 400 milligrams twice daily, but just a standard TDS, three times daily dose of, of ibuprofen. As, uh, again, just to reinforce what Ben was saying there, that you, it's so important that you don't reduce the blood flow to that tissue, which means... You know, they, they should never go into the cold. So, you know, even that transfer from taxi to airport to the airport has got to be as short as possible. Uh, they should never carry a bag over that shoulder. You know, if it's a hand that's, um, that's got a cold injury. Um, a little bit of champagne is very good because apparently it causes peripheral vasodilation and the bubbles are really nice. Um, uh, vigilant for infection. So some, some would advise that if you see um, dermal blisters start to give PENV at that stage, others would say only start to give um, antibiotics when you've got an indication that there's infection there. But infection is your enemy with cold injuries. Um, and then there's this, no, this discussion about should I pop a blister or not pop a blister? I think most blisters, unless you're absolutely adherent to um to treating these things really gently they're going to burst so uh, you know if, if you think it's going to burst you're probably better to remove the fluid and then it's under a bit more control and it's a bit more uh, aseptic they've got they're going to need a tetanus if they're not tetanus covered already and i think more than anything you've got to be patient do not let anyone chop off a digit uh, because it it looks black and eshgar and because it is survivable it's incredible how tissue will uh, reperfuse and you'll get normal function back again there's an old-fashioned saying isn't there it might be an inuit one about frostbite in january amputate in july and it's about leaving the body to do what the body needs to do unless the person becomes 
septic like the Jamie Jamie Andrews, um, where he got frostbite. Um, he sadly his friend uh, Jamie uh, Fisher died, um, and Jamie Andrews got frostbite in hands, both hands and both feet, um, and then went into sepsis, uh, and then lost. Um, both hands and feet uh, with below elbow and below knee amputations. Um, and there's still this classic, obviously, Ranoff finds out there who got bored. Um, his finger was became irritable and, and put his finger in a vice um, and then snapped off or got a junior hacksaw and cut through the bone to, uh, to cut through the, the frostbitten area to, 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 uh, to, get, to get rid of that bone. He became impatient. I think it was a black and decker sore he took it off with <laughs> but but you want the, the, there's a few horror stories out there by people who have seen experts and had fingers removed or toes removed and uh, a thumb removed and then a big toe removed and sewn back to where the big to where the thumb was and then the bodies then rejected the the um the transplant and that person's then lost the ability to to walk um, and also lost the lost the thumb. So there is one or two sort of uh, horror stories out there where people have seen an expert who isn't an expert, um, and and I would always seek um, Professor Chris Imray's advice um, straight away. And in some parts of the world, frostbite equals amputation. Um, and that's depends where you are, um, has its problems. Um, and again, time, unless infection is dictating, time is your friend. There are, uh, there are some tests you can do that will, will tell you about tissue viability, of course. So you can do, uh, you know, bone scans, you can do MRIs. Uh, I think the window, of, the best, the golden standard, the gold standard is you want to be doing that within sort of two, three days if you can. But and it, you, if you need to do it outside of that, you do it when you can. It'll tell you the depth of the frostbite. It'll tell you the viability of the tissue. And it'll give you an indication of, of uh, where you are likely to get reperfusion to. And there's a number of, of drugs that are now, uh, you know, so you've got aliprost infusions. You've got uh, pentoxifiline uh the french use buflamedil they're all the increased blood flow and the the vasodilators as well um and then there's uh, tpa i think is sort of gaining um uh credence and it's it appears to to reduce the amputation rate if it's given early enough we were looking at isloprost for antarctica but i think the you know the the cardiac or the arrhythmias that you can get as a result of aliprost, we weren't willing to take that risk when we're so far away from, uh, you know, advanced intervention. Um, um, so some of those scans were called, were used by Emmanuel Couchy, who was a French um, surgeon and also a mountain guide, um, called the Couchy score. Um, sadly, Emmanuel died in an avalanche two years ago. Um, he was a great friend of Chris's, um, but yeah, the, the, the scores are called the the Cauchy score. I didn't realise that. Yeah, fantastic, guys. Yeah, listen, so I, it was, it was really fun actually because um, I've been in in Arctic Norway with Chris, 
um, in 2018. And he, he was answering an email, or we were answering an email for him. And whilst we were up there, and then we got back home, and about two weeks later, um, a, a Manny uh, was killed in, a, in an avalanche. Um, and so, and basically, that pushed Chris to be the world's leading expert in frostbite, because before that, it was Manuel Couchy. As a mindful of time, and just, and, and I think we've covered everything I set out to cover. But just, uh, just to finish off, is there any sort of is there any pearls of wisdom or take-homes you'd just like to leave the, the audience with, just, just as a resounding summary of, of what we've just talked about? I, I, we didn't cover non-freezing cold injury, and it is worth people just having a little read about, because it, um, it causes a huge... So within the UK, it causes a huge amount of um, uh, morbidity and can result in changing people's enjoyment of the outdoors. So I would say, remember tricyclics, uh, uh, early intervention, and it is very good if it's taken early for chronic pain. Uh, I would say, um, never give up on the uh, hypothermic patient in the uh, pre-hospital environment. I've seen too many people who have uh, recovered reasonable function um, with protracted periods of hypothermia, and that is generally in the context of avalanche and a cold water immersion. So don't give up. That there is, you know, that is the warm and dead. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the classic um, Kevin Fong book, or about life in the extremes, where he uh, goes to visit Anna Bagenholm in, in in Norway, and it's well documented on a YouTube clip. Um, and, and, and his book is, is, is itself is, is, a, is a very good read. Um, and yeah, it talks about Anna Bagginholm and, and, and her dropping her temperature to 13.7, I think, mm. uh, and, and surviving. And now she works as a radiologist in Tromso, I think, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there's, for me, um, there's some great. There's great books out there. There's some, obviously lots of clinical documentation, but for me, I get my excitement in my re reading round books like Cold by Randolph Fines, or when it comes to the water, um, Essentials of Sea Survival by Mike Tipton. It's a fantastic read. I looked at it today on Amazon to see how much it would be. I just fancied a copy myself, and the cheapest copy on Amazon at the moment was 140 quid. So I thought I'll wait till I see that in a second-hand bookshop. Book <laughs> um, but also another for me, another great book is um, Cairngorm John. Um, it's a fantastic book into the inside of Scottish Mountain Rescue, and in it looks about hypothermia and decision making with the young, um, the young casualty, and people lying under bodies while they're having CPR to try and give off heat because of the patients, because the patient's so young and the group dynamics and the thought process that go with that. Um, but as Martin Rhodes would say, mild, moderate, severe hypothermia will kill on the hill any time of the year. So thanks guys. Listen, that's really comprehensive. And I think there's pearls of wisdom across the conversation. So I just want to thank you both for your time and your, and just inferring your experience 
um, over the past hour. So thanks, chaps. It's a pleasure. Yeah, nice to see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll catch you again soon on the next webcast academy session. Um, hopefully with Absolutely. another turkey and... Yeah. Um, I'll carve him up. <laughs> thanks, chaps, and we'll catch you soon. Cheers. See you guys. Cheers, chaps. Bye. Legends. Legends. Bye. Thanks, chaps. See you soon. See you soon. See you soon.